uh, one of my favorite things to do is to go yard sale hunting. How many of you like to go yard sale picking? I think it's a blast. But anyway, uh, you know, you can go to yard sales and you can pick up lots of little treasures and you can barter with people and work them down. And, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to, to try to pick up those valuable treasures, things that you'll... Uh, one man's junk is another man's treasure, right? Uh, I remember when I was a kid, my dad uh, came home from a yard sale. My dad used to like to go yard sale shopping, and he came home with a rabbit scooter. How many of you ever heard of one of those? It's, it's like a moped, but it's like the Cadillac of mopeds. It, it's, uh, it's, it's got this big old back on it, and it was really nice. Uh, the only problem is it didn't run. It didn't work. And so I used to sit on it in the garage hoping one day it would work, and it never did. It sat in a dark garage for at least 10 years uh, and never worked. And I thought about that uh, as we are in the book of James. We are looking at how faith and works work together. And so this morning, I'd have you turn to James chapter 2. In the 20 plus years that I have been in ministry now, I've, I've been asked countless times by people, Pastor, how do I know that I'm saved? And you know what my answer is? I don't know. <laughs> how do you know you're saved? The answer uh, is, what are you doing for Christ? You know, many of us have come from varying backgrounds of church. We've all come from different places. And, and uh, a lot of churches nowadays, they don't seem to emphasize serving God in any capacity. They, they simply want to count noses. They want you to come into the church, uh, watch the show, uh, they can count noses, uh, but, but because of that, uh, people go to church for decades without ever serving God. And so what you get are a lot of spiritual pygmies. You know what a pygmy is, right? Those little short jungle people, right, that never grow. Uh, Christians who never grow in Christ because they're never told that in order to be a follower of Christ, you have to work. You have to work. It's not legalism that I'm talking about here. It's evidence of the fact that you're saved. Right? You've been saved for a purpose, and that purpose is that you would do godly works for God. Right? And so... As we look at James this morning, James' whole point is that faith that does not work is dead. It's not real faith. And so uh, as we go through this text this morning, I will warn you now, I have body armor on, and so you can't hurt me. Uh, But it is a very convicting text. It really is. And my prayer and my hope is that your hearts would be open to what the Word of God has to say. Let's look at James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. 
But are you willing to recognize, O foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So this morning, uh, my hope is that we're going to learn two truths about the close, intimate relationship between faith and works so that our lives will match our testimonies. What I'd like to do is just take a moment to pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for this text of Scripture. It's a, it's a hard text to face. Lord, a, a lot of introspection is necessary, a lot of self-evaluation to see if we are indeed um, evidencing faith in you through our works. Lord, I pray your spirit would open our eyes this morning and would unfold this text. And that, Father, uh, he would enable us to serve Christ faithfully, to bear fruit, to be vines that bear fruit for our Savior. Lord, may you empower this text and may it change our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, the first truth I want to look at here is in uh, verses 14 to 17. So, if you look at the text there, uh, it's profession of faith without possession of it is workless. It's a little bit of a play on words there, but uh, the point is that when somebody says uh, that they have faith, but they don't evidence it through their works, then that faith is workless. It's a workless faith. So verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Answer? No. What use is it? It's a rhetorical question, and it's used two times in this section. If you look at the uh, end of verse 16, you see uh, one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? So he says it twice. What use is it? It's a rhetorical question. And uh, it's the word ophelos in the Greek. And the point is, what advantage is it? What does it gain you is the point. What does it gain a person to say they have faith, but then do nothing to show it? Does that person have saving faith? That's the question on the table. And notice in the text, the emphasis is on the word he says. It's moved forward for emphasis. And the the point here, uh, also in verse 16, is that it's a subjunctive. And and in Greek, what that means is that it's a a possibility. Uh, It's not a a reality. Uh, In other words, he may say he has faith. He might say he has faith. It's not a statement of fact. He might say it. But it's not a visible reality in his life. He may boast about having faith to his buddies. He may boast to it about his faith to the church. 
but he shows no evidence of it. There's, there's no works to back up what he says he believes. He doesn't, in the vernacular, he doesn't walk the talk, right? This person has what we call a profession without possession. He's an unbeliever. He says he has faith, but he really doesn't. And therefore, it doesn't show up in any kind of works. Now, works in the context here, we always talk about, well, what works are we talking about, right? Well, in the context, verse 15, we're talking about acts of compassion. We're talking about acts of compassion. In in general, good works are righteous, godly acts of service to God and to others. Uh, Ones that, if you will, they they comport uh, with what God has revealed in his word. They're, They're deeds done in righteousness. And so James says, if there are no works, if there is no fruit... If there is no evidence that you are a believer, then why would you say that? And he's going he's gonna to back up this opening salvo, if you will, with an argument. And his argument is this, saying words of compassion without actually showing compassion by your works is not saving faith. You know, a lot of us might pray, uh, uh, Lord, make me a more compassionate person. Make me a more compassionate person, right? And they're looking for themselves to change magically into a more compassionate person. But guess how you become a more compassionate person? By showing compassion to people. (laughs) Right? It doesn't happen magically. It happens by practice. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, it's a, this is a hypothetical scenario here. A, a brother or a sister, it actually says, uh, Adelphos and Adelphe. It's the only place in the New Testament where the word Adelphe is used, and it's talking about a believing sister in Christ. It's a fellow believer. Right. You got brothers and you got sisters in Christ who are in need and in want. Male or female, this person has a need. And I just wanted to say this uh, Christian equality of the sexes, uh, one author said, is opposed to the heathen emphasis on the male. This could be a male or a female, somebody in need. We don't just favor the men here. It's male or female, and they're without clothing. The word here is the common word for being naked in the Greek. And it doesn't mean they're literally naked. It's being used in a metaphorical sense. Here's the hypothetical scenario. This, this person is at their lowliest possible state. They don't even have clothes to cover themselves, to keep themselves warm. They're destitute. They they can't cover themselves to keep themselves warm. Um, There's an element of shame, I think, involved here, public shame. Uh, They don't even have clothing, right? They're embarrassingly poor. And they don't have daily food. And there's a definite article in front of this, uh, the word the... It's the daily food. Uh, and it, what it means is it's the food that a person needs for survival, for day-to-day survival. Right? It's, it's bread and water at the very least. Food for the day. Daily rations. Something to keep them alive. They don't even have that. And then James says... The scenario continues, he says, and one of you says to them, and notice how he's gone from this hypothetical scenario of, you know, a certain person may say, and now he says you, right? This is a little more direct now. Uh, One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, 
and be filled. But you don't give them anything. You don't give them what's necessary for their body to keep them warm. What use is that? You don't give them food to keep them alive. This uh, be warmed and be filled, these are, um, again, the action of the verb. It's It's a middle verb, which means that it's deepening the insult a little bit. You're kind of saying to them, let someone else do it, or, or, or you go do it yourself, and, and, uh, and by the way, we're not going to give you the means to do it. And so it's like, uh, go be warmed and go be filled yourself. And yet you don't give them anything to help them out. So he says, verse 17, here's the conclusion. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Right? You say you have faith, but you don't help these people. And so your faith is dead because your faith is alone. It doesn't have works with it. And if faith has no works which enable it to be displayed publicly, it's not a living faith. It's a dead one. And the word dead here is necros. It means dead. It means it's not alive. It's dead. So compassionate words without, without the actions to back them up are fake. They're fake. They're phony. In the same way, faith without works is dead. Right? Metaphorically speaking, faith, if it doesn't have works, it's not a living faith. It's not alive. It's lifeless faith because it stands alone, and therefore it's a fraud. It's a sham. And so this kind of faith is not saving faith. It's false. It's phony It's fake. Martin Luther, a very famous quote, said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Right? Read that again. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always comes with works. It's a package deal. Charles Spurgeon said, faith and works are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. He that is without faith is without works, and he that is without works is without faith. And I like what this author said, living faith works, but dead faith withers. You know who said that? Me. (laughs) Jesus. I said that. Psalm 1. You're either going to be that tree that's planted by the canal of living water, drawing life from that water, the Word of God, and practicing it by bearing fruit and prospering in a season, or you're going to be that what? Chaff. You're going to be tumbleweed, right? Because you've dried up, you've not been connected to Christ, you've not been connected to the Word of God, and so your faith is going to wither. Something is either alive and it's growing, or it's what? It's dead. Right? It's either alive and it's growing, or it's dead. And this ties in nice with what Thomas's recent messages have been about, I think. About abiding in Christ. Right? Bearing fruit. Is your testimony real because you're abiding in Christ and bearing fruit? Or, or does your testimony lack works to back it up? And if it, if it lacks works, 
then it will wither over time. It will not grow. It will die. In fact, James says it's already dead. So, profession of faith without possession of it is worthless. Second truth, possession of faith without proof of it is worthless. That's James' second lesson for us here, second truth to take away. Verse 18 begins with a really big contrast. I I thought about breaking this text up, but it just wouldn't work. I couldn't do it. It it all sort of jives together. It's a a big swath, but it all just sort of works together, and there's no way to, to break it up. And verse 18 is the big contrast. It starts with the word but, Allah in the Greek, and, and it's the strongest contrast that there is in the Greek. And so this whole next section now, all the way down to verse 26, uh, is all talking about one thing as well. Just different aspects of one truth. And so uh, what I'd like to say is that there's, there's two keys that sort of unlock this section of Scripture. There's a lot going on in there, it seems like, but it divides up easily, you'll see. Uh, But there's a couple of words in there that sort of unlock the text for us. And I want you to see those words. Uh, The first one is the word without. Without. It's the word chorus in the Greek. It occurs two times in this section, and it literally means apart from. Apart from. And it's in verses 18, and it also shows up in verse 20. Without, apart from. So faith, apart from works, is worthless. Faith does not, here's the basic premise of the text, faith does not operate apart from works. They work together. And that's what James is going to argue for here. That's the point. And the second key that helps us to understand that is verse 22, the word sunerge. It means working with. Working with. So you have faith does not operate apart from works. Faith works with works. That's the idea. Faith and works are inseparable. They're like Siamese twins that can't be separated. One cannot exist or operate without the other. They work in unison together. You could almost say that works make faith come alive. So the point is not here that works, and a lot of people misunderstand this text, the point is not that works spring forth from faith. That's not what he's talking about. His, his point is that works and faith work together to accomplish perfecting one's faith or maturing it. And so in the context, that's what we need to understand. So James is going to give us four lessons about that very truth here in the text, Right? That faith and works work in unison. So now four lessons about that. Four truths in the text here. And the first one is this. Works define your faith. In verse 19. Works define your faith. And again, I'm not legalistic here. I'm just arguing what James is arguing. Uh, And it's not contradictory to the rest of Scripture. I'm not legalistic. We're talking about proof of your faith. We're talking about evidence of your faith. Not that works somehow save you. That's not James' point either. I'm not saying that. So don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. I'm saying that that faith and works, they operate together to mature your faith and their evidence of your faith. Right? They don't result in your salvation. That's not what James is saying. The works define your faith. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. 
Now, why did he put that in there? Well, it's a clear reference to Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Ehad. What that means is, hear, O Israel, right? You know this. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, right? It's, it's the unity of God. It's, it's the most basic theology in the Old Testament. And, the, and the, it's called the Shema because Hebrew uh, word for hear is Shema. It's a command, right? Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. But implied in the text, and you, and you need to go back there because this is, this is uh, it's just basic Old Testament theology. Deuteronomy 6. Starting in verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. That you might, what? Do them, right? In the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his commandments and his commandments. Uh, his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Verse three, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to what? Do it. Do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he starts in on the Shema here. So. The verb to hear does not mean just listen. It means what? It means hear it and do it, right? Hear and do the word of God. It's basic theology. God is one and he expects his followers to hear him and do what he says. And so this section in James, I told you, coming off of verse 119, every one of you must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Uh, This section that we're in is all about being quick to hear and do the Word of God. That's the section we're in. Starting in chapter 3, we're going to talk about slow to speak. But this is finishing up the idea of being quick to hear and do the Word of God. Now, why does he bring up the demons? Well, James says that even the demons believe in this orthodox view of God and His oneness. They know who He is, right? They have an orthodox belief if you could say it that way. But they don't serve God faithfully. It says instead that they know the truth, but they have sense enough to shudder at it, to tremble in the presence of God. They understand the implications of Deuteronomy 6.4, and they tremble because of it. So their orthodoxy, uh, you know, they're, they're solid in their orthodox faith, right? But that's the point James is making here. Orthodoxy must go a lot further than simply believing the right things about God. It must put into practice the propositional truths of Scripture. There, there are truths there that we have to believe and do in order to be followers of Christ. And Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 was always understood to mean hear and do the Word of God. So it's only, only natural that James would sort of tap into that truth. 
dead orthodoxy is worthless. A confession of faith without putting it into practice is worthless. It doesn't do you any good. The believers should be characterized by hearing and doing the Word of God. Works should define your faith. Doing the Word of God is not optional unless you want to be like the demons, characterized by dead orthodoxy. James says faith without works is dead. He's not contrasting two methods of salvation here. He's not not talking about salvation by works versus salvation by faith alone. That's not what's on the table. That's not the discussion. He's contrasting two kinds of faith. Living faith that saves and dead faith that doesn't. And the sad reality is that the vast majority of churchgoers today kind of fall into category number two. They find themselves in, in churches that equate entertainment with faith, and faith is divine, uh, defined as hearing, 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 and never doing. Right? How many messages have you heard in a week? How many times did you come to church in a given week? That is not doing the Word of God. That is hearing it. Remember, James told us earlier on, don't delude yourselves. Right? Don't delude yourselves. A person who hears the truth and believes it will act on it. One question for self-evaluation is, is simple. You can probably come up with it yourself. What works are you doing to display your faith? Said another way, how, how would anybody know that you're a believer or a follower of Christ? How would they know? I'll leave you to answer that question. Lesson number two, works develop your faith. Works develop your faith. They define your faith. They develop your faith. He says, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or matured or brought to completion. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, that a man is not justified by works... I'm sorry, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here James is going to draw upon Genesis 22, the narrative with Abraham and Isaac where he offered him up on the altar, right? And he's going to teach us another lesson about how faith and works act in unison with each other. I'm sure you're familiar with this story, right? And again, he says, faith without works is what? Useless. It's useless. It's like that moped in my garage. Right? It's sitting there in the dark, useless. See, the picture in this passage is one of obedient faith on the part of Abraham. He offered up his son Isaac on the altar, just as God had instructed him to do. And James says that Abraham's faith was 
And don't miss it in the text. It's what I told you. Soon Erge was working with the works, right? His faith was working with the works. They were working together to perfect his faith. This is a, an imperfect verb, and, and the idea here is that Abraham's faith was constantly helping him in the performance of the works. We're working together. They were co-workers. Now, interestingly, Abraham was said to be justified back in Genesis 15:6, right? He was, he was declared righteous by God back in Genesis 15:6. We're talking years later now. He's offering up Isaac on the altar, and James says he was declared righteous here. Now what's going on there? See, this is what I'm saying is that, that uh, works develop your faith. Because what we're talking about is years of obedient faith of Abraham. Following after God, doing his will, and this is the culmination of it, James is saying. The willingness to even sacrifice his, his only son. The child of promise. I mean, he's over 100 years old now. He's not going to have any more kids. This is it. And he's got to throw him up on that altar and sacrifice him as God has told him to do. Can you imagine? Would you obey that command? That would be a toughie. But because of this significant act of obedience, he was called a friend of God. Right? If you love me, you'll do it. What did Jesus say? You love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do them. And Abraham was told, do this. It's like, really? Yes, do it. And he did it. And Abraham is considered what? The father of faith. Faith and works work in unison to perfect, to mature, to develop faith. If you want to grow muscles of faith, right, what do you do? You lay on a couch and you eat nachos like me. Now, what do you do? You exercise them, right? If you don't exercise your muscles, they don't grow big and strong. If you don't work your faith, what do you have? Let's call it faith atrophy. Well, I said it withers. It withers. So in other words, if we if we say we have faith, and yet we do not serve God or others in any way, will our faith ever develop into maturity? You remember Hebrews, right? Hebrews chapter 5. What did the author of the Hebrews say? Hey, you guys are still drinking milk, right? You ought to be teachers by now, and you're still on a milk diet. And his whole point there was they were going for... They needed to go from infancy to maturity, right? And the only way that's going to happen is by serving God. By your faith being put to the test, by working through those trials and coming out the other side perfected, right? Matured, complete. Consider it all joy, my brethren, for when you encounter various trials, right? Knowing what? that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, that you would be what? Complete. 
You'd be complete. Will your faith ever develop to maturity if you don't put it into practice? Will there be any public testimony that we are a genuine believer? Is your faith empowered by works? It's important to say the Apostle Paul says that we're justified before God by grace alone through faith alone. Romans 3.20, So how does this reconcile with what James is saying here, right? Are we saved by faith alone or are we not? Well, the answer is yes. We are saved by faith alone. You're declared righteous by grace through faith. But that's not what James is arguing for here. James is arguing for the proof of your faith, which is works. Right? It's the evidence. They operate together. They perfect the believer. So a true believer is going to evidence his faith in works. So works define your faith, works develop your faith. Third lesson, works display your faith, verses 25 to 26, right? In the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as Abraham, right? In the same way as Abraham, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Joshua 2, what did Rahab do with the spies when they came? She hid them, right? And then after she hid them, I mean, she welcomed them into her home. She showed them hospitality. Then she let them out the back door, if you will, and protected them. So, so Rahab, James says, was declared righteous by God because of her works that were done in faith. She, she put her life and her family's lives at risk. Her own people would have killed her if they would have found those spies there. And then when the soldiers came looking for the spies, she had sent them out by another way to to conceal and to protect them. And the point is that she, she changed allegiances, right? She sided with the good guys. She, she placed her faith in the God of Israel and protected his people. She put her faith on display. And because of that, she is in Hebrews 11.31, right? She is in the great hall of faith as an example of faith. And James says her works were on full display for everybody to see. And like Abraham, because of her faithfulness in her life, she was declared righteous by God. By the way, again, I should probably say this. When we talk about justification, we're talking about being declared righteous, not becoming righteous. There's a big difference. You don't become more righteous. You're declared forensically by God when you place faith in Christ you're declared not guilty it's a legal declaration right but it's made by God to you you're declared righteous and the righteousness of Christ gets credited to your account so all of our righteousness is where it's in Christ uh, as the old reformers used to say, it's externos. It's outside of ourselves. It's in Him. Very important to understand that truth. So works define your faith. Works develop your faith. Works display your faith. And finally, works decide your future. 
Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is meant to be a summary of the whole argument here. It's it's the connection between faith and works. Like I said, they're so closely connected. Uh, You know, the, the difference between dead orthodoxy and false profession versus saving faith, this is what this is all about. Right there. Faith and works are so closely connected, you cannot separate them out. They work together. They have to. And without it, your faith won't grow. It won't be perfected. Right? I have a pair of leather gloves in the garage that I use for garden work and stuff like that. Do the gloves do any work on their own? What's required for a glove to work? A hand, right? I have to put a hand in the glove to make it work. It's kind of the same with faith and works. Your faith is kind of the, the glove, right? And the works are the hand. And they work together. They work in unison. Without one or the other, it doesn't work. So this is meant to be a summary here. In a nutshell, James is saying that there should be sort of this indissoluble marriage, if you will, between faith and works. In other words, uh, the spirit to the body is breath, right? And bodies don't live without breathing, right? So the union between faith and works should be so close that it's like a body and its breath, right? Without the breath, what happens to the body? It dies, right? And so without works, faith will die. The the absence of works from your testimony is like the absence of breath. To your body. Dr. Thomas said, Each is lifeless, useless, and offensive. Are you living with a testimony of dead orthodoxy, or is your faith on full display for the world to see it and give glory to God? If your profession of faith is spurious and worthless, then you need to ask yourself, what future am I facing? If there are no works accompanying your faith, then you you better take a moment to go up the butterfly diagram and see if you have the right kind of faith. You start wrong, you will end wrong. And because a faith without works is dead and it's of no use to anyone, Um, that's not the faith you want. Randy Smith, a popular writer, said, Some will say we need to add good works to Christ's work to be saved. No. Others will say, uh, since we are saved by God's grace, and because all of our sins are already forgiven in Christ, we can live as we wish. Answer? No. So the first says following God's law is necessary to be saved. The other says following God's law is unnecessary once saved. And both are terribly wrong. We're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. God's grace will always give us the desire and ability to follow God. The greatest evidence that we are recipients of God's grace will be seen through our obedience, not to get saved or stay saved, but proof that we truly are already saved. It's evidence. It's evidence that you are already saved. And one more quote, Kent Hughes, he said, In the lives of many churchgoers today, there is a yawning chasm between profession and action. 
professed faith and works. And that chasm gives the lie to people's loud claims to real faith. I hate to be the one to ask this question, but if there are no works to show that your testimony is genuine, then what are you going to do about it? Your answer to that question will decide the course of your future. Because profession of faith without possession of it is worthless. Right? And possession of faith without proof of it is worthless. I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of nasty grams for this message. Uh, But the truth of the matter is that those who shepherd the flock of God have to give an account for the souls under our care. Right? And that's what James says in the next chapter. (laughs) I'd like to be able to say that I didn't hold back or soft pedal the truth. And my goal is to be honest with you, so, so you will be honest with yourselves. And Lord willing, if you are not a genuine believer, you might feel the courage to come to your senses and escape the snare of the devil. Come to your senses. Stop playing church. Stop living a lie. Stop being a fake believer. If you're not really a believer and there's no evidence to prove that you're a believer, come to your senses. Repent. Trust Christ. Get the help that you need. Find life. May God bless His Word to that end and And may his spirit bring conviction where